Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation. We're going to be spending time with uh, Kimberly Smith, the Chief Inclusive Innovation Officer uh, with Digital Promises Center for Inclusive Innovation. Um, Look, the word inclusivity um, has been bantered about in education for a number of years, but my goodness, if it's never more important than it is now, uh, we really need to have an understanding of its application uh, across this country and and even how others are, are applying that across the world. Kim, it's nice to be spending some time with you. You have an incredible background. You were vice president of education at PBS. I mean, you, you sort of can go on and on in this in this background. So tell me about your journey to Digital Promise and, and why this is a good fit for you at this point in your career. Absolutely. And thanks, Rod, for the opportunity to be here with you today. Um, so, you know, I've been working in education for, gosh, a quarter of a century. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say it that way. That sounds really long. Um, but um, ha- had the joy of starting out in public broadcasting, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, uh, on a project that was focused on distance learning 20 plus years ago before the internet. Wow. And uh, what was really cool about it is that I was involved in the development of video telecourses when we had VHS players and we would ship these video courses um, out to the world to military ships where folks were earning college credit um, in the military, um, homemakers, uh, and fathers and mothers at home working uh, working during the day and then at night uh, would engage in these video series. We had partnerships with education publishers uh, to provide textbooks uh, and then um, on-air broadcasting over public broadcasting uh, where folks could literally be in your living room and, and watch television and earn college credit um, in stati- taking courses in statistics and art history and psychology. Imagine all the 100 and 200 level courses in college that you could earn college college credit at a distance. Um, And it was really just a wonderful time. I was kind of new in my career, Uh, didn't know I wanted to go into education, but I caught the fever um, when the internet came to be. And I was tasked with kind of creating online. What does the online experience look like for a learner at a distance. And that really, for me, is where I started to uh, work in this imagination and innovation space to think about what teaching and learning looks like in a, in a digital realm. Um, and so went from there to Discovery Education, uh, where I led the development of a portfolio of digital-based services for teachers and students, uh, really trying to pioneer what does video on demand look like in education. Uh, how do you really slice and dice uh, content to really align to students' competencies, um, to teacher professional development, uh, and then uh, made my way into uh, PBS, where I uh, had the pleasure of working with 170 public television stations to <laughs> really digitize all of this amazing public television content uh, to create PBS Teachers, the first network of teachers who embrace this idea of public media plus public education uh, and really work to uh, support states uh, and uh, districts across the country 
Um, and um, the last, before I came to Digital Promise, I was at the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, creating an entrepreneurial pathway so students could uh, kind of in, embrace these entrepreneurial mindset skills as part of their core learning experience uh, and bring entrepreneurship effectively into uh, the classroom and into teaching and learning. Um, so all of this is built up to, you know, being able to try new kind of uh, pathways, ways um, to support teaching and learning, uh, thinking about content and curriculum and professional development, uh, teacher networks. Um, and it has really fed my uh, love for working with schools and districts and coming to Digital Promise where um, I work with the League of Innovative Schools, 125 districts across the country, and now um, launch the Center for Inclusive Innovation so that we can really think differently around how education innovations come to be. You know, and you might be the perfect person uh, or a perfect person to, to ask this, but when we think about the word inclusivity, sort of the alternative to that is exclusive, right? And when we think about all the things that are going on and throughout the educational landscape, and we have districts, and I'll, I'll speak from my state here in Tennessee, where we are sadly taking away curriculum and books, and we're, we're, we are carving up curriculum in ways I don't think we would have imagined in 2022, um, that does not feel terribly inclusive, if you, if you ask me, and you could have a different opinion. How do we, from the education side, because I think a lot of these decisions are being made by people that may not have the background of a, of a Kim Smith or even a Rod Berger. How do we help educate the masses on the power of diverse content that can meet all types of students in all type, with all types of backgrounds and needs and wonders and curiosities to help young people feel that they are reflected in the very content that they are experiencing? Mm. You know, I think that at the heart of this challenge is really trying to ask the question, is belonging important for a child, right? Is it important for a child to feel like they belong, that they are included, that they are seen, heard, and valued? Uh, and I think we would be hard-pressed to find a parent who would say that that is not important. I think what's happened in our world today in the United States is that we're, we've tried to, people are trying to draw hard lines on what is, you know, in or out, right or wrong, without looking at um, really what does it mean for the, a child to really feel like they're cared for and that they're seen and that they um, can have an experience of learning that that feels like yeah i'm supposed to be here and i'm valued here and everyone here wants me to be successful um and if we were to get down to that core understanding of what inclusivity means uh i just don't think that we would have um as the kind of this this notion of opposition right around what's included what's in or out what's right or wrong about about how we learn and how we support our students. So my hope is that, you know, um, that we're able to um, think about uh, through the lens of, you know, even our own experience. I don't know about you, but um, I, I can almost guarantee that everyone had an experience in K-12 where they felt like they weren't seen. 
right, where um, they weren't popular, where uh, where they felt excluded. And I think that as adults, we have to tap back into that to really come to a place where we want to co-create a space where all students feel included. How do we think about the educator in the in this algorithm um, of inclusivity when we also are, I think, on the edge of our seats, our collective seats, wondering when or how this big quit uh, sort of a, you know, a, a subplot to the great resignation may or may not take place. I mean, I, in my kids elementary, we've already, our principals is leaving uh, multiple first grade teachers where my daughter is the librarian. Like we're, there's a lot of upheaval, upheaval in that way. And, and I do think that there is concern for, if we start losing these professionals, one of the last things we're going to be worried about is, oh, wait a minute, are we covering everybody's feelings? Are we aware of what's going on? And that, to me, has collateral damage written all over it. So how do we think about, especially with your, your previous work with educators, thinking about finding ways to not only provide support for all the work that they're doing, but to create sort of that network of support that is longstanding? Well, and it raises the question about how have we thought about the identity of teachers and the uh, you know teachers as a profession you know I was we're working we're doing some work with teachers of color around recruitment and retention and I was in a focus group last week and I a teacher said you know I went to school to learn how to do this like I have an advanced degree right I am a professional and yet I'm always told to be quiet. And I, I just I thought about that and and it just it just struck me as, you know, um, what's the conversation we're having today about, you know, teaching as a profession, the identity of teachers? How do teachers feel this sense of belonging, uh, that they're being valued and respected? You know, in our work that we're doing, uh, you know, one of the things that we're trying to raise up uh, in several of our districts are leading initiatives where uh, it's important for teachers, and we think about teachers of color, to feel a, a brotherhood, a sisterhood, right? To feel a community, the notion, a community, right? And, and beyond just like a surface network, but more about um, a level of connection that is at a, a very deep and almost like familial level, right? In terms of the level of support, reinforcement, I got your back. Um, and wanting to feel that not only from a peer, peer-to-peer -peer level, but also from the leadership within schools and districts. And it's because I think that's the reason that's those are the bricks on the wall that we've lost, where have that have led to this uh, literally almost like the sense of evacuation, right? Where teachers are kind of evacuating a, a set of conditions that have become in, untenable. And so um you know, I just, when we think about this belonging, this identity, this community, this family, uh, to me, that has to be true for teachers as well as students. How do we incorporate in the parents? Because when I, the back sort of backroom chatter that I hear off the record is just, you know, regardless of the number of sort of just workplace issues that maybe an educator is going through, sort of the, you know, the, the nail in the coffin, the proverbial nail in the coffin is the, is the, uh, the lack of respect maybe in the interactions that educators are having with parents of the kids in their very classroom. And I'm just wondering at what point, I mean, where did we lose our way, Kim? You know, I mean, we all went through these same systems and yet for whatever reason, now we, we turn into adults and we are pushing back against the very system that 
you know, supported and, and produced us. And I'm wondering how do we, when we think about inclusivity, we really have to think in my estimation about the community in that regard, because we're seeing the spillover into political races and school boards and, you know, sort of the list goes on and on. And years ago, we would say, oh, that really won't impact the classroom, but it is impacting the classroom. And, and if we're going to be inclusive, we have to, it seems like, have a very comprehensive community approach that incorporates in the parent. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're right, Rod. And I think the, the challenge that we are trying to now shore up is uh, we talk about the, the learning gap, right? But think about the gap, the distance that's been, that has been historically created between schools and families. Right. And it's almost like, you know, you come to school, you drop your kid off, your kid goes into the school building and they come back out. And this this notion of kind of almost like a baton passing of a child between a family and the school. And I think that ultimately that has created almost like a a kind of a hard to navigate distance. Uh, We saw with the pandemic that that distance you know, immediately slammed shut because of, you know, you have parents that are having to teach children and um, having to care for children and, and, you know, around their learning and how they're advancing in their learning. Um, All sorts of stressors around, you know, the pandemic when when we first had to navigate that in 2020. Uh, But I, I do think that the solution is in bringing kind of, um, is solving for that distance bringing folks closer together. Because what we've seen in our work with the Center for Inclusive Innovation is when parents are at the co-design table, when parents are at the co-research table with district leaders and with with principals and teachers, their um, lens on the challenges that are being faced, on the policies and the practices that are Um, many times impacting the ability for teachers and schools to innovate, Uh, their ability to really understand the conditions uh, that uh, leaders and teachers are navigating changes their perspective on where there are opportunities for for teachers to be creative and for the teachers to really embrace, um, you know, the community. And so, that 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 opportunity that lens uh, is something that I think we need more of is where parents are closer to the learning design table. Let's pivot and talk about the the Center for Inclusive Innovation. What questions are you asking, sort of writ large, as a group, um, and and what over the last you know so many months has I guess piqued your interest, the collective interest of of the center in directions that you might pursue to find answers and find solutions for? Yeah, I think the the questions that we have been, uh, you know, navigating over the past two years is, you know, what does the world look like when we can take a school community collaborative partnership to education R&D, right? What does it it look like when uh, we have no lines that are kind of dividing um, that we think about the community and the school as part of that ecosystem and that 
we now are uh, co-creators, right? What is what is the co-creation ecosystem look like? Uh, where you may have on one team, we have uh, police officers, uh, parents, families, district administrators, teachers uh, that are at the table together to develop um, ideas and solutions to support students uh, around mental health, right? Uh, and so what does that co-creation experience look like? And what comes out of that experience? And how might it be different uh, when we have new voices at the table and there's a level of mutual respect where, uh, where context expertise is valued. So we think a lot about the folks that are living and breathing the lived experience of the folks that are in that community every single day, that when the school building's lights are turned off, they are still living in that community. And they're the ones that their expertise really matters. And what does it look like when we center on context? Uh, and, and does that really change the outcome and the output from the process? So those are the, some of the questions that we've been exploring over the past couple of years. Let's talk about the funding, the funding element and, and sort of resource. Are we, are we resource poor in these areas around the country? I think there's such a, there's confusion around funding when we think about the U.S. compared to other countries and the amount that we're spending per pupil and what districts have or they don't have and where those funds get allocated. Are you seeing from 10,000 feet that the questions that you're looking to address that one area of need is funding? Can funding improve these areas or is it really not a part of the equation? You know, I think it's less funding and more of will. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, the willingness uh, and the capacity, uh, the capacity to engage uh, in a process. Uh, you know, I, I think about, you know, sometimes we think about education innovation and it's really rooted in this idea of product, right? The, the end result. But I think that where we're, we are trying to build capacity is around process and are people willing to engage in an equitable process that is going to result in a different product or output or outcome. Is that the unknown, Kim? Do you think that's the unknown that we we just struggle with? We want to know, we want to be able to block and tackle ones and zeros, inputs and outputs. And if not, then we don't want to talk about it. That's right. There's, that's the culture, right? And so it's it's a culture of, you know, uh, I rem in some of these sessions, I you know that we're facilitating. There's a lot of um, pushback because when are we going to get there? When are we going to when are we going to discuss the thing that we're creating? When are we going to build the thing? And there's See, that seems other, like the issue, right? I mean, that right. right there when they say that, that to me right. is the heart of the issue. Right, right. This propensity to just have an answer. So when you just check off a box, right, right. And I think as educators, right, there's a natural culture of having the answer, and um, and so there's just a you know the the culture of systems and school systems is is to have the answer. And so going through the process where let's look at the conditions. Let's think about our own mental models, right? Let's think about um, how we look at the world. 
and how that might be conveying into the culture. And in the context of that, let's bring in new voices that we haven't heard before, get their perspectives. And then let's take a, let's do some research, right? Not, not digital promise, do the research, but let's, let's have the folks at the table engage in the research. And what do you learn from the data? And it's that, that process that can be very uncomfortable for, in the, for uh, a system that is used to making the decision, blocking and tackling. And so that's been one of the, the biggest kind of uh, challenges we're navigating. But I'll be honest with you, when people come through that process and they look back and they think about, oh, I get it because now we're going to land somewhere else, right? Yeah, it, it's um, it makes me wonder about the skill sets that we have existing and the and the roles that lead everywhere from the classroom to the building to the district, right? And even the social supports. Do we have are people in essence are they on, are they in the right seats on the bus? Do we need to help cultivate a new set of skills in the next generation of those adults that interact with kids? And if so, how do we maintain? I think respect for the for the current practitioner in what they're providing, because to me, this comes down to a fear that I'm what I'm offering is not going to be valued. And so rather than just maybe walk into my vulnerability, I'm going to push back. And if I push back, at least I maintain the status quo. But if we open up Pandora's box and we find that, you know, my goodness, I haven't been potentially interacting with my class the way that I potentially could have, I just didn't have the education or the support mechanism, you know, I that feels even from the parent side. So it does feel like we're in this really interesting position and time where we're going to have to start to evaluate what is it that we really want when it comes to people's experience in schools? Do you think I'm, am am I, am I close or am I far afield on that, Kim? No, I think you are close. I think that we have to balance the, um, you know, respect for, you know, I believe teaching is magic, right? Um, And I, you know, I think that uh, that we need to balance the respect for the the magic that's happening in 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 many classrooms across our country, uh, and also um, honor that uh, we don't. You know, uh, let's let's not kind of assume right the um, the learning experience that we're delivering is you know always is you know, maybe recognizing students for who they are and the identity in which they live and the community context in which they breathe every day. So, so where's the, where's the balance between kind of respecting the magic of teaching, but also honoring, right? Uh, The, there's some piece of this that we may, you know, need to contextualize in a way that we never had before. And making room and space for that. You know, I think that, you know, right now with this teacher of color project, you know, one of the things that I'm I share with folks is that, you know, there's there's no better person to say uh, how to recruit and retain a teacher of color than a teacher of color. Right. So we, you know, go to go and bring them into the process. So balance that that expertise with bringing the folks in who are most impacted. And I think that's where the beauty is. Yeah, very, very well said. And I love the the balancing the magic of teaching because you're right, it is magic in that regard. And and we all see it. We 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 can recognize it when it's when it's there. And and we need more 
we need more Kim Smiths out there asking these very big questions. Where can people go to follow the work of the Center for Inclusive Innovation? Oh, absolutely. So um, digitalpromise.org. And uh, we are there as a, a, a website within Digital Promise. This is a center, one of Digital Promise's centers of excellence. Uh, the focus that we, fo- the work that we focus on is really around inclusive R&D. So, uh, so the work that we're, we have seven projects in motion uh, focused on systems transformation, data equity, uh, how do you support students with, you know, addressing mental health issues, uh, how do you support uh, social justice discourse in a classroom in a healthy, uh, productive manner? So we have a number of projects that are in motion right now and uh, would invite folks to stop by digitalpromise.org and, and check us out. Well, you you seem to be the absolutely perfect person to be helming the center. Uh, we want to thank Kim Smith. She's a chief inclusive innovation officer at the Center for Inclusive Innovation, a part of Digital Promise. Uh, Kim, what a pleasure. Uh, continued success and keep being curious. I think we're the better for it. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.